Well, uh, this morning I am continuing the message series titled Becoming the Me I Want to Be. And today we're specifically looking at the topic of fear. And more specifically, we are looking at freedom from fear. Uh, Real phobias, real anxieties, real fears are no laughing matter. Um, I think we would all agree that fear is a powerful human emotion. Um, Fear can influence and shape career decisions. Um, Fear can influence and shape our financial decisions, our parenting decisions, and, and, and even our relationships. So, believe it or not, fear can also influence our health. Medical science from the University of Minnesota links fear with fatigue, chronic depression, accelerated aging, and premature death. Now, in my opinion, at its worst, fear can be emotionally and spiritually paralyzing. So, before you dismiss today's topic as not being applicable to you, I would argue that a great many of us, perhaps unknowingly, harbor even low-lying fears that unfortunately erode our quality of life and interfere with our relationship with God. The Bible has a lot to say about fear, so much so that there is no way that I could cover it all within the next three hours that we're going to be spending together. Nice, I got you. All right. Uh, There's no way we could cover all that the Bible has to say about fear. So today we're simply going to look at three Bible stories and we're going to look at the origin of fear, at least least two harmful ways in which we react when we are afraid, perhaps actually more ways. Um, And ultimately we're going to look at a successful strategy for overcoming fear. So let's start with the core origin of fear. If you're following along in your bulletin outline, or um, if you're following along in version, our first uh, fill-in on the outline is fear is a consequence of the fall. Fear is a consequence of the fall, also known as the fall of humanity. Now, we learn about this, uh, this idea of the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 2, but to set up, I mean, sorry, Genesis chapter 3, but to set up uh, Genesis chapter 3, we have to start in Genesis chapter 2. And the setting is the Garden of Eden. And there are three characters in Genesis chapter 2. One character is God. The second character is Adam. And the third character is Eve. And, they, and Adam and Eve, humanity is placed in the garden in order to tend the garden, to take care of it. And God provides for all of their needs. God provides for all of their needs. Adam and Eve, so in the garden, uh, there are trees, there are plants, and so on. And there's all these trees, but at the center of the garden, there are two specific trees. And one is the tree of good and knowledge of good and evil. And the other tree is uh, the tree of life. Adam and Eve are, are invited and, and uh, free to, put, to partake and eat of any tree in the garden except for one. And so there's a rule. There is a guideline. There is a restriction There is a law, and that law is that they cannot eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, laws and guidelines, restrictions, all of those things like, you know, American freedom, all of those types of things just feel oppressive. Some would argue that the laws are just oppressive. And I like to counter that argument with this illustration. Just 
west of this building, there's the Family Life Center. And on the other side of the life, uh, Family Life Center, as many of you know, there's, there's a playground. And that playground, um, it, what, what was, why did we build that playground? We built that playground so that when children were let out of class, they could go out and play. Playgrounds are meant to stimulate children and, 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 and allow children to thrive and have a great time. Now, before the, our Stonebridge property was as wide as it currently is, it used to be half that this width. And, and the driveway used to come off of Cochrane and come right alongside the buildings and raw, right alongside that playground into the back parking lot. Now, imagine that now currently um, that playground has a fence around it. But imagine if that fence didn't exist. So the children are let out and they start to play, but ultimately, and if you've, if you've seen it, there's actually a five-foot drop down to the ground. Imagine if the kids are going out and they're playing, and some kids, you know, curiously kind of right, go right up to the edge. Others kind of s- maybe trip and stumble and fall off the edge. They hurt their knee. They maybe, you know, sprain their wrist. God forbid a car comes into the driveway and comes down that driveway when a kid's on the ground hurt. Other kids perhaps make it past the driveway. They continue to go and play, and they're out there, but maybe they're wandering down the street into random yards. Maybe other kids are wandering into Cochrane on a busy traffic day. None of this is what we want for our children. They're exposed to danger. And so that fence, right, that boundary, let's call it a restriction. Let's call it a guideline. Let's call it a law. The the fence is that law. And why is it there? It's not there to oppress the children. It's there to keep the children safe, right? Outside of the fence, there are dangerous things. And inside the fence is this sanctuary. We'll call it Eden, in which the children can thrive. So, if Adam and Eve eat of the tree of good and evil... There is a consequence. And the consequence in chapter 2, verse 17, is that it says, surely they will die. So mortality is a consequence of eating from this tree. Now, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are at thoroughly, thoroughly at peace with one another. And Adam and Eve are thoroughly at peace with God. Now, imagine that. Thoroughly at peace with God and thoroughly at peace with one another. So much so that in verse 25, it says, they were naked and without shame. Naked and without shame. Seriously, naked without shame. (laughs) Right? Like, let that sink in. It takes a lot of, let's call it self-esteem. Healthy body image. To be able to just walk around in your birthday suit with no problem. They are fully transparent with one another and fully transparent before God. They can fully be seen. Now, I think nudity, naked without shame, is much more than just a, a physical state. I think it's meant to be emotional. I think it's meant to be... Maybe spiritual, thorough, even mental, like, like all of their thoughts are shared and understood and accepted. They are safe to be emotionally vulnerable with one another. They don't have to be afraid of any judgment. They were naked and without shame in the Garden of Eden. Now, this sets up fall of humanity. 
what's known as the fall. And that uh, takes place in Genesis chapter 3. So we turn the page in our Bible to Genesis chapter 3. There were three characters, God, Adam, and Eve. And now a fourth character comes into play. And that fourth character is the serpent, a physical representation of the evil one. And the serpent has a strategy for evil. The serpent wants to undermine the word of God. God has declared what is good in the garden. God has declared the rules, the guidelines, the law. And the serpent, did God really say that? Did he really say that you can't eat of that? He starts to underline the word of God. And when and Eve responds, she, she responds by saying, well, yeah, he did say that. And, and, and he's, more than that, he said that if, I eat, if we eat of, this, of, of the fruit of that tree, that, that surely we would die. And, 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 and he undermined the evil one, a strategy for evil. He goes, well, are you really going to die? And so he undermines the word of God. This is a strategy. Now, all of this, uh, the, the, the serpent um, tempts Eve and eventually Adam. And all of these things happen before the fall. And as you know, if you know the story, then you know that Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. And immediately, the consequences of their bad choice is activated. It's as if a switch is turned and all of a sudden, everything goes downhill. Before the fall, they were naked and unashamed. After the fall, they are naked and afraid. Naked and afraid. Why? Well, what we see is they see each other. <laughs> Maybe they see themselves. But all of a sudden, they are self-aware and insecure. And they're, they've disobeyed God, and so they're insecure, not only in their relationships with each other, but they're insecure with their relationship with God. So it plays out like this. Now, when we're insecure about what our relationships with other people, um, in modern day um, psychology, this is called a social phobia or social anxiety. Now, these can take different levels of severity. Um, It can be as simple as just, you know, you feel uncomfortable standing in front of a bunch of people and talking. (laughs) Yeah, I know that one. Um, it can be, uh, you know, like you just, you're going into a, a work meeting and you're feeling nervous because you don't feel like you're dressed appropriately, you know, whatever it is. But it can be obviously much more severe. Uh, social anxiety can be so extreme that people are afraid to leave their house. Because there, all of these reasons, it's because we are afraid of being judged by other people. That's at the core of social anxiety. Fear of being judged. And I think when, that, when that, that switch was flipped, there was something about a self-awareness that gave them an insecurity about themselves of being thoroughly transparent and being judged by one another and by God. So what do they do in this new state of reality? Well, they run and they hide and they make excuses. Now, the first thing they do is they, they make, um, you know, clothing for themselves. And then they, and, and they're running and they're hiding. And I, 
it's not very clear, but I imagine that they're kind of running and hiding from each other. And then they make excuses. You know, God, the, the story continues and God enters into the garden and he's looking for his children. Where are you? And he finds them. And he says, who told you that you were naked? And Adam goes, well, uh, you know, I was, uh, she made me do it. And so the spotlight goes from Adam to Eve and she's like, uh, well, I did, and you know, making excuses here. Well, the, the serpent made me do it. And as they say, the serpent had no leg to stand on. (laughs) Heard that one, (laughs) right? So they run, they hide and they make excuses. Now, when we're afraid, do we run? And do we hide and do we make excuses? Of course. People run and hide in all sorts of ways. Um, they, ri- they run and hide to elicit relationships. They run and hide to addictions and alcohol. They run and hide to get, this came to me last night. Some people run and hide behind anger. And some people run and hide behind violence. Because they're afraid. This is the new state of the world that we currently live in. And it's all because of disobedience to God. Mortality is now a reality. And in addition to this, Adam and Eve were cast out of uh, the Garden of Eden and they to never return again. And what came with the fall of humanity was self-doubt, anxiety, and fear. All of these things are a consequence of the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, Adam says, I heard you in the garden, and I, you being God, I heard you, God, in the garden, and I was afraid. Number two on your outline. Fear, when fear becomes our focal point, we falter. When fear becomes our focal point, we falter. Now I'm going to uh, move to another story in the Bible, and it comes from Second uh, Kings chapter six, verses eight through seventeen. And uh, I want to give you the context, the setting first, and then we'll get into the story. But the setting, the context, is there are two kings at play in this story, and one is the king of the Arameans, the other one is the king of Israel. And the king of the Arameans is trying to attack the king of Israel and and win the battles and win the win the the land, so to speak. And um, and interestingly, the king of Israel and his armies continue to evade um, every evade and outmaneuver the king of the Arameans, and and so the king of the Arameans basically holds a war council with his officers, and he's like, "What is going on? Every time we try to attack, uh, we're not we're not successful. What's going on? Why are we failing?" And uh, you know, his, his officers basically, you know, sometimes the higher-ups don't know what they know on the ground. And the, and the officers say, oh, that's easy. See, they, say, they tell him and they inform him that there's this prophet. And this prophet is he's the prophet of Elisha. Now, the prophet Elisha, if you don't know, is the understudy. He's the protege of the prophet Elijah. And, and, and they tell him there's this prophet named Elisha, and, and he's a man of God. And every time that we go to attack, Elisha is telling the king of Israel what's going to happen. And that's how they continue to evade us. Now, there's also another character in this story. There's Elisha, and then there's Elisha's servant. Um, and we don't know his name. It's just Elisha's servant. 
Okay, so the king of the Arameans comes up with a plan. Okay, well, I know how to do this. We will first capture and kill the prophet Elisha, and once we do that, then we can capture and kill the army of Israel and the king of Israel. Step one, step two. Just that easy. So they find out where Elisha and his servant are, and they're in this town, and the town is Dothan. I don't know why I remember that, but I do. The town is Dothan. They're in Dothan, and um, like you know, so many uh, military, um, uh, military. Uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, huh? No, that's not it. Anyways, okay, they're going to attack. They're, they're trying to capture and, and get them, and um, and and so they 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 use the cover of night for their stealth, and and they come in and they surround the city at night. So the city is surrounded. And it's almost as if, like, like they're going to be, once the sun comes off of the horizon, rises on the horizon, that's when they're going to attack. And so early in the morning, uh, the prophet Elisha's servant, I imagine, you know, he, he's the first one up. And for whatever reason, you know, he, he wants to make coffee, but he goes, no, I'll go outside and get a fresh, fresh, fresh breath of air. So he goes outside, and as he goes outside, he sees the hills, and the hills are surrounded and all he sees are horses and chariots. And this is where I'm going to pause the story. Because what he says is, oh, my Lord. And he's not talking about our Lord in heaven. He's talking about the prophet. Oh, my master. He cries out in absolute fear because his focal point are the chariots and the horses that are surrounding the city. Now, when we have our focal point on our fears, we falter. And I want to describe three ways in which we falter. And I think you're probably already familiar with this, right? When we're afraid, there are three ways we can falter, right? We, it's fight, flight. Can you know what the third one is? Freeze. Now flight, we've already talked about that. Adam and Eve ran away and hid. So I'm not going to say any more about that. Let's talk about freezing. In terms of our own fear, in terms of things that we are afraid of in our own life, I think freezing um, can be described like this. I think when we freeze in light of our fears in our lives, whether it's relational or work-related, whatever it might be, we have a, a tendency to unhealthily accept a given situation. Let, let me say more. It's as if we have this excuse, and the excuse is it's, the circumstances are always going to be this way. We just accept the status quo. It's always going to be this way, and it's never going to change. And when we have that attitude with, in relationship to our fears, we just don't take any action. It's always going to be this way. It's never going to change. And so we just don't do anything. Freezing. Now, the third way we falter is fighting. And fighting, of course, um, I think for the servant, like, right, the servant in the story, like, he's not going to all by himself charge all of the surrounding horses and chariots and army. Um, fighting. I took, um, when I was young, I'm, I'm putting up my fists. I took uh, karate for two years. And one of the basic things about fighting, and you see this in boxing too, is you need a good stance, right? Um, you need to be able to, without falling down. If you're, if you're standing like this, you're just going to get pushed over. 
You need a good stance. And I think in terms of our fears today, the fears, the anxieties, the self-doubts, the things that we struggle with today, I think what fighting might look like is this. A stubborn, right? A stubborn unwillingness to have a change of perspective. We see it in one way. And we can't, we're, it's like we're locked in and we're so stubborn in this that we can't see it in any other way. So let me tell you a story. Some things you may or may not know about me. Number one, I'm colorblind. Number two, there are certain things in my life that I get really OCD about. So really OCD? Well, a little OCD. I don't know. So one of the things that I do around our house is I mow the lawn. So I get the mower out, and I'm mowing the lawn, you know, and then, you know, you kind of move the, the th- anybody relate to this? And then you kind of go back, and then you, you, and you're making these rows of clean cuts. And every once in a while, I stop, and I check my rows to make sure that it's good, it's on point, that all, every little, you know, blade of grass is taken care of. I'm colorblind, remember this? So for me, it's all just a green thing. But it looks pretty good to me. So I'm doing it back and forth, back and forth. I'm finally done. I put away the mower. You know, maybe I go inside to get a, a drink of water. Maybe it's time to get cleaned up. I go take a shower, whatever it is. But ultimately, this happens every time I mow the lawn. And I'm OCD about this. Like, I want every blade, like, I want the lawn to look, right? So it might be I go out into the street to talk to a neighbor. It might be that I go down and get the mail. My wife laughs because I never get the mail. But let's just say I do that. And w- because when I'm in the middle of mowing my lawn... It looks good, but all of a sudden, I don't know, maybe the sun has changed from over here to over here. But all of a sudden, when I'm over here, I'm looking at my lawn, and it's like alfalfa from the Little Rascals. There's a little somewhere. And I just, I'm like, oh, why didn't I see that before? Where, when I was in the middle of it, I could not see it. But now that I'm over here and the light has changed with this new perspective, I can see it. Ah, now let's go back to the story. So the servant, right? Uh, the servant is, is, is there. He's the first one awake. And what does he say? He says, oh, my Lord. Oh, Alicia, wake up, dude. <laughs> no, that's not there, but you get the idea. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? It's like he woke him up. And the prophet jumps up and he gets, says, and we know he's afraid. And you know why he knows we know he's afraid? Because Alicia's first words are, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Let me say it again. He says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you've got to think that the servant's going, what are you talking about? Do you see what's going on here? Get this. New perspective. And then the prophet Elisha prayed, O Lord, capital L, (laughs) Oh, Lord, open his eyes, open my servant's eyes so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and what he saw on the hill were full of horses and full of chariots of fire, all surrounding and guarding Elisha. A change of perspective. You see, I think there are times when we have a fear and it's huge. Our, all we can see is that that's, that we're afraid of. And it is huge. And sometimes we're so locked into seeing it the way we're seeing it that we, we're overwhelmed. 
And then Elisha prays, and there's a change of perspective, and the servant sees it in a new way, and this huge fear is diminished to something this big. God is for us, not against us. The enemy looks way more threatening when, we, when we're unwilling to change our perspective. How do we change our perspective? I think there's two ways to do that. One is right here in the scripture, and that is Elisha prayed that his eyes would be open. I think there are times when we are faced with our fears that we need to humble ourselves, soften our heart, and ask God, God, I, I can't see a way out. I only see this in one perspective. Please show me a new perspective. And I believe that God gives us fresh perspectives. Sometimes, and part number two, sometimes God gives us a fresh perspective through people around us. Which is to say, as believers, I think it's really important not only to be in consultation with other believers, but really try to identify in your life other believers who are more mature in the faith than you are. And when you are surrounded by overwhelming fears, start praying and go reach out to them and say, I need help because I can't see this in a good way. And those believers from their life experience and from their spiritual maturity are going to have insights that perhaps you do not have. This is how we gain a fresh perspective on overwhelming. (laughs) And it's an illusion. We think it's overwhelming. And God is saying, you know, really, by my power, it's really this big. When fear becomes our focal point, we falter. Number three, fear diminishes. Fear diminishes when we focus on Jesus. This story comes from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. One of my favorite stories. Jesus walking on water. If you're reading, if you've got your own Bible, sometimes the heading will say Jesus walks on water and then it has the story. It really should say Jesus walks on water and so does Peter. Let me set up the story. Um, Okay, where's the story? Uh, Okay, so what happened the day before? Okay, the day before, they feed 5,000. So the the disciples have had a really busy day. 5,000 people, Jesus has been teaching, people are hungry, Uh, they need to be fed, Uh, there's no Taco Bells, what are they going to do? Huge miracle, they feed 5,000 people, right? Really busy day. Disciples are tired. Jesus is tired. He says, listen, I need a little me time. I need to take a break. The sun is, is falling, uh, setting, and, and, and Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to walk around the lake and spend some time alone. I'm going to recharge my batteries, and I'm going to spend some time pr- in prayer. He goes, what I want you guys to do is get in the boat and head across the lake, and I'll meet you on the other side. Okay, and then, you know, we'll move on. Now, uh, there's, there's four watches, and this is, they're going to sail across that, that lake o- overnight. So there are four watches uh, over the night. It's 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. From 9 p.m. is the first watch. 9 p.m. to midnight is the second watch. Midnight to 3 a.m. is the third watch. And uh, the fourth watch is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. The story says that during the fourth watch, this is between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning, during that watch, so what ha- a couple things happen. First, the waves uh, start building up. It, the, the lake starts getting stormy, and you're thinking, come on, it's a lake. How stormy can it? Really, the disciples are wimps. Remember, they're fishermen. 
Remember that. They have experience. And the waves are getting bad enough that they start getting afraid of the conditions. Now, where are these conditions coming from? The Lake of Galilee is surrounded by hills and canyons and arroyos. The wind, it's like a microclimate. The winds start getting funneled. We know all about this, right, Santa Ana's? It gets funneled down into those, those canyons and then hits across the lake, and it gets choppy during certain times of the day or during, during, season, during different seasons. So uh, how many of you have ever been on a boat at the wrong time on Lake Tahoe? I've heard, I've heard stories that Lake Tahoe can get, like, uh, really bad. Same kind of thing. Middle of the night, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., middle of the night, the waves, the, these guys, some of whom are f- professional fishermen, are getting afraid by the storms. And here it comes. They look out, and what they see is somebody coming towards them. And I'm sure from their perspective, it looks like some kind of body, like, hovering over the water. And their first conclusion is it's a ghost. And I think you would respond the same way, because this doesn't happen every day. Imagine you wake up at 3.30 in the morning because you hear something in your backyard, and when you go out to look, there's somebody hovering over your swimming pool. You'd freak out too, and you might come to the conclusion it's a ghost. So they're afraid of the conditions, and they're afraid of what they first see they think is a ghost, at which point Jesus says, don't worry, it's me, at which point they recognize it's Jesus. There's a lot of fear going on, and, and I have to believe that there's a pause. There's, there's something happens there that you don't see in the Scripture. But I have to believe that it takes a while for their brains to catch up with their emotions. There's got to be a moment of like, wait, what? Huh? And they're looking at each other like, wait, did you just hear what I heard? I think that's Jesus. You don't get that. Because the next thing that happens is that Peter is fired up. He's like... If you say it, can I, can I walk on the water? Can I come out? And I can imagine that Peter's like climbing over the boat and up to the bow, and he's going to get onto that railing of the boat and just go for it. If you say the word, Jesus. Now, we all agree that walking on water is a miracle, right? Get this. If you say the word, Jesus. If you say the word, call me out onto the water. Peter wants a miracle. Peter wants a miracle. Give me a miracle. Let me participate in the miracle. Let me be, I, I need a miracle. Give me a miracle. And guess what Jesus doesn't say? No, no miracles for you. Eh, stay in the boat. Miracles are only for me, the son of God. You guys know. No, he says, Jesus said, you're in. Come on out. Walk on the water. You want a miracle? I will give you a miracle. We need to remember that. In the midst of our fears, God is not holding back a miracle. God wants to give you a miracle in your life. So Peter, boom, right? He steps out and he's walking. Now I get this from my buddy uh, Tom over here. I'm stealing it from you, buddy. I learned this the other day from Tom. Cross represents Jesus. And Peter starts walking, and he's walking straight to Jesus. He's focused on Jesus, and he's making it. But, oh my gosh, the danger of peripheral vision. Because as he's walking, right, we do this all the time. Hey, there's something moving over here. What is this shadowy thing over here? Huh? We're trying to walk, and we're looking over here. And I think for a lot of us, We have fears in our present, 
But I think we have some fears in our past that haunt us. And so we're looking to Jesus and we're like, I want a miracle. And then wait, what's that? And then we're like, wait, what's that back there? And we end up being really off track. We lose our focus on Jesus. And we really get off track. Jesus, God wants to give you a miracle in the midst of your fears. Let me close with this. First off, fear diminishes when we focus on Jesus. What are you focused on? Let me finish with this story. There's a Scottish uh, preacher. His name is John McNeil, and he lived in the second half of the 1800s. And he used to tell this story from his own childhood. Now, remember, child laws were a little, child labor laws were a little different than they are now. So as a child, he was put to work. Um, and he tells this story of how he worked uh, in one location, but his home was in another location. And in between where he worked as a child, remember, and home, was, there was a road that dropped into a culvert. And then came out of that culvert and then went to his house. And like Southern California, right? In the culverts, that's where the water is. And so it's a lot more forested in the culvert than it was. So as a child, you know, during the summer, no problem. Daylight until 8 o'clock, whatever. You know, it's all good. But during the winter months, it's cold and it's dark. He gets off work as a child. And he has to walk through this culvert. And it's dark. And when he walks into the culvert, it gets darker. And so he's shared this with his parents. When I walk home, I'm, that, that part of the road scares me. And, and it doesn't help that there were rumors that that's where the bandits are hiding to jump out on people who are traveling along the road. That's where the wolves are. And so as a little child, he's got all of these things going through his head. In the darkness of night, he has to walk through this culvert, and it's cold, and it's dark, and it's winter. And his fear, you know, you can feel your heart just, Right? So one night he's walking home from, from work and, and he drops into that culvert and he hears something ahead of him and he freezes. And, and all of a sudden he hears a voice and, and then he realizes, oh my gosh. And it's the voice of his father. And his father says, John, John, is that you? And immediately he recognizes the voice of his father and he runs to his father and hugs him. And then his father takes him by the hand And together they start walking out of that dark culvert. And his dad says, I know you had shared with us that this was the scariest part of the road for you. And I knew when you were going to be getting off work. So I came out to the darkest part of this road to meet you so that I could walk you home. Friends, God knows our fears. And God comes out in the midst, into the middle of them, to meet us there and to guide us out.